So, we're studying John chapter 3. We're going through John's gospel a bit at a time. Sometimes it's a bigger bit than other times. Today will be a smaller bit, but very important. So John chapter 3. Let me pray real quick before we look at the word. Father, we are approaching your word now, so we ask for your aid and understanding. And, and uh, Father, we pray that our hearts would be soft to anything we might need to hear today. We pray for wisdom always as we approach your word and humility and grace. And we thank you so much for giving us great truths in the, in the spirit, Father, in the word of God. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that it has a lot to say about various aspects of life. It's a guide for morality, for family life, for the workplace, for manhood and womanhood and suffering and sadness and victory and joy and everything. The Bible has something important to say about everything. But in our study here on Sunday morning, we are at that part of the Bible today in John chapter 3 that directs us to the center thing, the main thing, the, the most important thing. Nothing matters more than what we see in this portion of scripture today and in the next weeks. So if you think about it, if we get the main thing wrong, then everything else is wrong, right? If you get the main thing wrong, everything else is a waste of time. It really is. I mean, literally a waste of time. If you end up, after you die, in a place where you have nothing to look forward to except eternal regret, then everything else in this life doesn't matter by comparison. You end up in a place where, well, Jesus called it outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if that's where you end up, then no matter what you've achieved in this life or what you've felt in this life or what you've done in this life, all of it will only be a, a cause of more pain because of the regret of not doing the right thing, the first thing, the most important thing. So there are first important things. There are secondary things. There are tertiary things. That means third, right? <laughs> but we're looking at number one today. The first of all first, the most important thing you can give your attention to because it involves the destiny of your eternal soul. And that's why John gives us this conversation in chapter 3 between Jesus and, well, we looked at it last week in great detail, this conversation between the Lord and this highly regarded religious leader named Nicodemus, which is also the name of Freddy's dog. Yes, that's true. <laughs> John chapter 3 is a call to believe. It's calling on you to believe. In fact, the whole gospel does that, but here's the heart of it. And Jesus is calling on Nicodemus to believe. And so far it's been hard for him. And last week we talked about how the spiritual birth, this new birth Jesus talks about, what we call being born again, is essential for the salvation of every human being. You must be born again, Jesus says. The new birth isn't a psychological thing. It's, it's not a fad. It's not, how they used to say it in the old days, getting religion. It's, it's not that. It's more than that. It's something much deeper than that. The new birth is an act of the Spirit of God on the human soul, awakening the heart to the glory and the excellence of God as we see him in Jesus Christ, who is God become man. And by God's grace and power, if you're disinterested in Christ or even antagonistic toward him, this work of God 
changes you from the inside and makes him glorious to you. We call it a spiritual heart transplant. That's actually the Old Testament way of looking at it. God changes us by his power on the inside. So being born again is given new life and with that comes a new perspective and new affections. The things you love change and the things you hate change. It's so profound the new birth makes you become a new person. Not a different person, a new person. You're still you but it's a new you, right? And we are graciously redeemed by a wonderful savior and the biggest change is that we love that savior. We come to love him. And because we love him, we love what he loves and we start to we start to despise the things that he despises, the things that he hates. It's a new way of seeing everything when you have the new birth. And without this act of God, we would never even come to him because human beings are bent against God. Our nature is so corrupted, we would not come to him without it. So one message of the new birth is that human beings are, are so sinful, so bent against the real God that we will not turn to him unless there's some radical work that he does in us. And that's what the new birth is. And Nicodemus, I don't know, he's not getting it. So the last time we saw all these great truths about the new birth in this conversation Jesus had with him, this very highly respected Jewish leader, a theologian, a, a scribe, an a guy that knows his Old Testament through and through, a member of the Supreme Council, one of the leaders of Israel. And he seems really open to learning from Jesus when he comes to him. Look at verse 2. Look back at verse 2. He says, this is, these are, this is how he introduces himself to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's, he's ready, he says. So Jesus immediately starts talking to him about the new birth. You must be born again, he says. You can also translate that born from above. That would be a legitimate way to say it too. It's something God does. But that new birth talk, it just wasn't easy for Nicodemus. He had a hard time understanding it. Although Jesus, Jesus thought he should get it since he's a scholar in the Old Testament. He should know. And we talked about that last week as well. A new heart, having God's spirit take up residence in you is a key promise of the ancient scriptures. It's in Jeremiah and Ezekiel chapter 36. We talked about that last week too. He should have known about that. And so Jesus challenges Nicodemus on his lack of understanding. In verse 10 here he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? You should know. You should know, bro. I don't know if he said that. <laughs> something like that. He said something. And as we saw last week, he really should have known. because. But his religious training, his Pharisee training, got in the way of the word of God in his life. And so Jesus is trying to awaken him to that. Jesus also challenged Nicodemus for the lack of faith shown by his group, the Pharisees, his people. And Jesus said in verse 11 that the testimony that Jesus was giving and what his disciples were giving was not accepted by them and they need to accept it for their own sakes. That's what they are saying is God's solution to the human problem and they are rejecting it. So he's warning him about that. And then Jesus asked Nicodemus to think about to think about who he's actually talking to. Now Jesus reveals to him using 
Jewish thought forms and Old Testament language that he would be very familiar with just who he really is. Jesus is not just another rabbi. He calls him rabbi. He's not just that. He's a teacher, yes. He's not just a, a wunderkind as the German would say, an amazingly gifted theologian. He's not just that. He was the teacher sent from God. Okay, he's a teacher sent from God, but not like, oh, you're, you're such a wonderful teacher. You're sent from God. No, he's really sent from God, like directly. And that's what verse 12 is about. He's a teacher sent by God in the greatest sense that you can give to those words. Verse 12, Jesus says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but, but means there is somebody that has, right? So there's somebody, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And Jesus is the son of man. So he's come down from heaven. That's what he's telling him. He's telling them, one of the great leaders of Israel, one of the top theologians of Israel, that he has come from heaven. So he, he's giving, Jesus is giving weight, a greater weight to the idea of Jesus as a teacher sent from God, way beyond what Nicodemus could have imagined. And there's only one person who has the answers from heaven, and that's the Son of Man, and that's Jesus Christ. That is a blow your socks off claim. Not everybody here has socks on, but if you had them on, if you were Nicodemus, your socks would go flying on. What Jesus is saying is, I came from there. I came from there. I came from heaven. So he's directly claiming to be the Messiah and more than a mere human being. And that's basically where we stopped last week. But there's more. So now Jesus, for the first time in the gospel, is going to make an explicit reference to his crucifixion to the cross of Christ. And you got to remember, we're in just the first two or three weeks of Jesus' ministry. He's already talking to the leading theologian of Israel and telling him about the cross years ahead of it happening. That's where we are. This is brand new. Jesus went to a wedding, then he went to the temple and spent Passover there and wowed everybody and did miracles there. And then this guy came to him. I mean, that's how soon it is in the ministry of Jesus. And because he's talking to a Bible scholar, and I think this Bible scholar had a puzzled look on his face, Jesus explains his purpose and, and strongly hints at his death on the cross by drawing a really interesting analogy from something that Nicodemus would be familiar with, something out of the Old Testament. So that's what he's doing. So he's going to refer to a, a something that happened in Numbers chapter 21 way back in the Old Testament. Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? Way back then. So he's going to talk about that. And this story from Numbers 21 takes place at the end of Moses' life, right after his brother Aaron died, and near the very end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And guess what? Guess what the Israelites do? Well, what do they always do? They grumble. <laughs> They're grumbling, right? They are professional grumblers. So here's Numbers chapter 21 verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Oh, wait a minute, you just said you had no food, and you loathe the food God's given you, which is manna from heaven that just shows up on the ground every day. That's what they've been eating, and they don't like their... I like, I like spicier stuff. Whatever, whatever their complaint was. So they're still grumbling. 40 years in they're grumbling. This is near the end of that whole thing. So God sends a plague among them. Now let me put a little history behind this here. Um, this grumbling isn't new. God had to deal with the Israelites many times after he delivered them from Egypt. At first God's pretty patient with them. You know, they grumble and he kind of takes care of them. Exodus chapter 15, for example, right after God brought them out of the Red Sea through a miracle, a miracle, walking through walls of water, watching an Egyptian army get destroyed by God, all of that. And they stop at some place to get water and the water's bitter. So they grumble about that. They complain about that. So God provides a way for them to sweeten the water. He does something for them and it sweetens it. He, he just responds to their grumbling right away. Exodus 16, they grumbled about the food supply in the wilderness. So God started the astounding miracle of manna appearing on the ground every day, except Saturday. But anything you picked up on Friday lasted through Saturday where the Sabbath day was. So you didn't have to go out and pick it up. It just, every other day it would go away. But on Friday it lasted through two days. How does it do that? It's a miracle. It's miracle food to teach them about the Sabbath and to provide for all their their needs for food. So God does this amazing thing and they could take that and make bread with it. So he just provides it for them after they grumble. Exodus 17 they complain about insufficient water so God brings forth water out of a rock. The Lord's really patient until they start worshiping a golden calf. That, that's a line. They cross the line there. Exodus 32 they do that and they worship this calf with a gross pagan I won't describe it behavior. Horrible, horrible sin. And then the hammer falls. So God orders Moses to tell the Levites to put a sword on their hip and go through the camp and execute those that are involved in this horrible, horrible worship going on. And they do that. Who, who, would, who would worship an idol right after the living God brought you out of Egypt through an incredible series of miracles? Who would do that? Ungrateful people. Ungrateful people. What? Humanity. Humanity. Yes. Good, good answer there, Blake. <laughs> good theologian. You're on your way. <laughs> yeah, humanity. Ungrateful people. They did not see God as holy. They treated God like Santa Claus. He exists for me. I don't exist for him. They had everything backwards. That was their thinking. And there were other incidents after um, God gave them the Ten Commandments and gave them the law and continued providing free food for them every single day they still grumbled and they complained they still did that in Numbers chapter 11 God greeted their grumbling with fire so a fire kind of broke out on the edges of the camp that he ignited so Numbers chapter 11 verse 1 now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tabera, which means a burning. 
because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So it was actually the intercession of Moses, the prayer of Moses that brought that fire to an end. And the Lord frequently has Moses pray for the people and then he answers Moses' prayer. That's to show them that Moses is the leader and he's the guy that has God's ear. So Moses was not only, his job was not only to lead the people but to plead for the people. He was an intercessor, he prayed for his people. And very often because of the prayers of Moses God turns away his wrath from the camp and God wanted to do it that way so Moses would be honored in their midst, right? So sometimes plagues were sent amongst the Israelites. Now in Numbers chapter 14 they actually rebel against God. They actually are going to kill Moses and go back to Egypt. They refuse to enter the promised land. So God told them they will never enter the promised land. They're going to wander for 40 years. That's when that starts, okay? Their children will enter it, but they won't enter it. And that begins the 40 years of wandering. So Israel's behavior in all of this is humanity. It's just the story of human beings. It is the story of humanity. It's human, humanity in a microcosm, one group of people. But the Jews are just acting like every other people. They're not special. They epitomize the natural man, the once born man the not born again person who has a broken relationship with God and is actually antagonistic toward the true and living God. Doesn't want to worship him, they prefer idols. And this whole history here shows us what the New Testament says plainly, the wages of sin is death. That's exactly right. So Romans 6:23, right? The wages of sin is death. And you see that over and over again throughout this history of the Jews, uh, especially that generation that came out of Egypt. So death is the penalty for rebellion and humans commit a lot of rebellion. Humans commit a lot of sin and death is the consequence for sin. So for the purpose of God's redemptive plan, the whole Bible is God's plan unfolding, right? For the purpose of that plan, God is often patient and he often allows the prayers of Moses or other intercessors or some act, some righteous act that somebody does to lead him to stay his hand from bringing death. He waits. And he, he will allow somebody to make atonement for the people through prayer or something like that as a way to keep the people alive. He has to have this holy nation so they're going to be, he has to keep them alive. And he plans to save millions and millions of people ultimately through them so he's, that keeps him from destroying them. If they all got what, if all the Israelites got what they deserved, we wouldn't have salvation. I mean think about it. Uh, the, the, the Messiah is coming from them, right? The promise to Abraham was that through them, through some part of his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So they have to survive as a people. And sometimes they just go too far though and then the judgment hits and because they, they need to experience what sin actually deserves, the wages of sin is death, they have to feel that. So sometimes he does slay a number of them. And they just can't go into the promised land expecting to do whatever they want. So there's consequences for sin along the way. There's consequences for immorality. There's consequences for idolatry. They're supposed to build a holy nation. That's what he tells them in Exodus 19. To be a holy people. A priestly nation. So he disciplines them when they're not doing that. But there's much mercy shown to them as well. Because God is working out his plan. And the children of Abraham are central to God's plan. Because God promised through a descendant of Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, we're up to Numbers chapter 21. That's the actual text we want to look at here. 
So this is the story Jesus will use with Nicodemus. And something very strange happens here. God chooses to do something unusual. So it starts off with, you may have guessed, grumbling. So verse 4. They set out from Mount Hor by way of the sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food. Okay so they're up to that again. We're back to that, that text. So of course the Lord did provide free food all the time for them. We loathe this miserable food. That, that just kills me. We hate, we hate what you gave us. That's like a little kid at the dinner table right? I'm not eating that really what it is they just want to grumble they want to grumble they had everything they absolutely needed in fact their clothes didn't wear out over the 40 years their shoes didn't wear out over the God protected them in every way miraculously but 10 times at least here they've been grumbling during the wanderings and they always want to go back to Egypt this is the end of the 40 years and they still want to go back to Egypt these people probably weren't even people that came out of Egypt most of them they were probably born during those 40 years and, but there's the echo of their parents telling the story of how much they grumbled and they're grumbling the same way we want to go back to Egypt so they're repeating the mantra of their rebellious parents from years before so the Lord sends a swarm of poisonous serpents throughout the camp of Israel verse 6 the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died very simple what he what the way it's described here so they start to repent and they ask Moses to pray for them that's what always works Moses will intercede and then the Lord will forgive us and then the thing will go away so they do that Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Moses was a very humble man. He always prayed for his people. And usually that ends it. That Once Moses does that, the plague goes away. The Lord forgives them because of Moses. And the Lord does want it that way. But not this time. There's more to it this time. This time the Lord wants Moses to do something very different. Very unusual. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses. Make a fiery serpent. And set it on a standard. And it shall come about. That everyone who is bitten. When he looks at it. He will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. And set it on a standard. That's like a stick or a pole. Maybe with a bar on the top. And laced it up there. And held it up real high. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man. And he looked to the bronze serpent. He was healed. He lived. And that's the end of the story. Now. John chapter 3. Jesus is going to use that bronze serpent. As an aid for Nicodemus to understand what he's been telling him. So Nicodemus has stumbled over the new birth idea. Three times Jesus told him you need to be born again and he doesn't grasp it. So Jesus is thinking this familiar story from the Old Testament will help him I think understand what I'm here for and what it's all about. So it's really a useful tool. Especially since God intended all along 
for this unusual event, this Old Testament event with the bronze serpent, to foreshadow Jesus on the cross. That's what its purpose was. But nobody knew it until now. So a very familiar Old Testament story is going to help Nicodemus. It certainly will give Nicodemus something to think about three years later when Jesus actually is on the cross. If he doesn't think about it before then, he will when it happens. So he's planting a a big seed here. So remember verse 13, back in John 3. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So the only person to have been in heaven is the one who came from there, he says, the Son of Man. Then we go to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So the parallel to the bronze serpent is really fascinating and remarkable. It's it's attached to a pole and lifted up for men to see. Why? So when they see it they will live. That's why Moses did that. It's a completely divine method of healing. There's no healing power in a bronze serpent, right? Unless God is using it. There's no natural reason to be healed by that. There's, it's a pure miracle. And so now the son of man is much greater than a bronze image of a snake. But the idea is very similar. So God's precious son, the Messiah, will be physically nailed to beams of wood and lifted up. And verse 15 tells us how much more significant this cross raising will be. So verse 15, see, remember seeing the serpent is what healed you, right? Back in Moses' time. And Jesus is replacing seeing with believing. You see the serpent, you're healed. If you believe in the Son of Man, you'll be saved. You'll have eternal life. So this is a spiritual seeing. It's not seeing with the eyes, but with the heart. It's believing on the Son of Man. It's putting one's trust in Christ as the remedy for what kills us. And by doing that, by placing faith in him, something much better happens than having your physical life restored by even that rather remarkable story of the bronze serpent. I mean, if you saw the bronze serpent, you would live a few more years, right? You might live out your normal course of life. But then you'll die. But, But if you believe in the Son of Man, you'll have eternal life. Jesus secures for us eternal life. And Jesus promises that all who believe in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So Jesus is using the bronze serpent as a comparison of the lesser to the much greater. It's just a picture of what's to come. So the bronze serpent only healed the body for a moment. But Christ the son of man provides life that will have no end. So don't miss what the poison of the serpent represents here. This is the most critical thing. In the wilderness the Israelites were bitten and injected with a deadly poison, right? From a snake. We here in Acton all keep our eyes out for rattlesnakes when we go walking in the brush, right? At least I do. The snakes give you a deadly poison. But every human being, everybody in this room, has been bitten and infected with sin. Every one of us. 
That's the common thing. That's what we share in our humanity together. Moral failure and a desire to place lesser things as substitutes for God in our lives. We've all been guilty of that. That's what the Israelites did. That's what we do because we're all humans. Humans choose idols of all kinds. Especially exalting and following their own corrupt desires. Their own corrupt hearts. That's what we do because that's what we are inside. We're idolaters by nature. Because we belong to our great father Adam. Who sinned and we are sinners like him. We, we, caught, we caught his disease. So the poison of sin is what we all share as descendants of Adam. So it's no accident that man is tempted to sin by Satan in the garden who disguised himself or inhabited a serpent. Thank you. <laughs> exactly, right? So that imagery carries right through from the beginning of Genesis. Satan's lies poison humanity. They poisoned humanity. And man sinned and God's warning to Adam came true. Dying you will die if you disobey me. So death enters into the human race. That's why we die. Satan's lies poisoned us. So we through sin we have already earned the penalty of death. For creatures made in God's image with immortal souls since we live forever sin means we are separated from God forever and that's why Jesus warns about the outer darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth when you die that's what sin actually deserves you know it's God's universe and he makes the rules and he is righteous I mean perfectly righteous what does the Bible say God is light and in him there is no darkness at all no darkness at all and he won't allow darkness into heaven there's got to be a big change. So we, we human beings, we're the moral corruption of the universe. We're the moral corruption of the world. It's us that messes up this world. So Jesus tells Nicodemus this most wonderful thing, the central thing. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So the question is, how can one man dying a cruel death on a cross bring eternal life? How does that work? Well on the cross Jesus is literally taking our place. Bearing the punishment himself for our sin. It's poured out on him. That's what the good news is. Several times the Bible says about Jesus dying for us. The just for the unjust. We're the unrighteous. He is perfectly righteous and he's dying for us. It's like a judge sentencing a man to death and then the judge getting down off his bench and going and dying in the man's place. It's an unbelievable gift. But that's what God did in Christ for us. Our judge pays the penalty. Jesus offers a sinless life in place of our sin filled life. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. He took the curse upon himself. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Eternal life is found in him. And that eternal life will be bound up. With his crucifixion. With the son of man being lifted up. And that's where the conversation just ends. Now most scholars. 
Bible scholars believe. Now, you know, in the Old Testament, in, in the, I'm saying in the Greek language in the New Testament, they didn't have quotation marks. So you, you don't always know when somebody stops talking and somebody else is continuing on the story. And that's true of John chapter 3. Most scholars believe the quotation mark should be, if you're going to put them in there, at the end of verse 15. And then John 3.16, which is a rather famous verse. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, that is John starting to comment on what Jesus said. Now, some people believe Jesus did the whole rest of John 3. It's all Jesus talking. That's possible. But there's a lot of grammatical reasons and just stylistic reasons why suddenly it sounds a lot like John. It sounds a lot like John's epistles, 1 John, a lot like it, the way he structures sentences and stuff. So I think that's probably true that um, Jesus' conversation ends at verse 15 and then John starts to comment in verse 16, okay? This very, very famous verse, right? But we aren't told here if Nicodemus ever put his faith in Christ. Did he have the new birth? I mean, even if you take it to the end of the chapter, it's just Jesus talking. It's not, we don't get a response from Nicodemus. So we don't know what happened with him, except he does appear in two other places in John's gospel, which we'll get to someday. (laughs) But in chapter 7, when the Pharisees are seeing Jesus as an enemy and they're all gathered together and they're talking about how they're going to get him, Nicodemus stands up and and says, you know, we never condemn a man unless we hear from him. So he's kind of like, that shows that he's kindly disposed towards Jesus still. He does, doesn't have a typical pharisaical attitude towards him. So we know that. And then in chapter 19, Jesus has, has been lifted up. And his body's taken down from, by the Roman soldiers. And a man goes to get his body from Pontius Pilate. You remember that man's name? Joseph of Arimathea. Right. And Jesus lets him bury him in his own tomb. And it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb, the Messiah. So this guy helped him take the body of Jesus and wrap it up and that guy was Nicodemus. So John specifically says that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus and here's Nicodemus, another council member, another well-placed Jew helping Joseph bury Jesus. So that's an indication maybe that Nicodemus believed. I'd like to think he did. Maybe he waited until, maybe it had to wait until Jesus was crucified and all these memories would come back about the Son of Man being lifted up. Maybe it took that long. But Nicodemus seems well disposed toward Jesus and at the end, perhaps he was a quiet believer as well. So all I've said so far today is to launch us into John's first comment in verse 16 on the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. And I'll just wrap up with this. And of course, this is one of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible. But this, we talked about secondary and tertiary truth. This is the center. This is the central truth. This is the main thing, right? This is it right here. This is what eclipses everything else of importance. You want to know how to, what God says about how to be a good husband or a good wife? That's really important. But this is way more important. This is the central thing. These are words for men that are estranged from God because of their sin. These are words for sinners, condemned to die, condemned to outer darkness by their sin. It's for those people, which is all people. Here it goes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the way to eternal life, if you want to have it, is a gift that God gives you. It, God gave And the gift is a person. And the person is his only son. The only son of God. 
God become true man. The second person of the Trinity becoming human. Why would God do that? Why would he do that? Well John uses a word in John 3.16 that he hasn't used yet in the gospel. He's waiting. He's waited all this time to use this word. It's one of his favorite words if you read his letters. But he's saving it for now because it's the heart of why God sent Christ to die for our sins. And the word is love. That's the word. God so loved the world. If there ever was a time to introduce that word, he waited, he waited until he could give you the greatest gift of love that anyone can even conceive of. There's no greater love known in all of time or all of experience than God, the perfect God, becoming a human being and dying our death for us. God gave. God gave his only son to suffer the full weight of the sins of many millions of human beings. And what moved him to do it is love. There's a very old hymn from the 1700s, the early 1700s, and some of the lines from it ask the why question. I just want to read it for you and then we'll wrap up here. And why, dear Savior, tell me why you thus would suffer, bleed, and die? What mighty motive could thee move? The motive's plain. T'was all for love. For love of whom? Of sinners, base, a hardened herd, a rebel race, that mocked and trampled on thy blood, and trifled with the wounds of God. They nailed him to the accursed tree. They did, my brethren, and so did we. The soldier pierced his side, tis true, but we have pierced him through and through. Such was the race of sinful men but that gained that great salvation then. Such and such only still we see. Such they were all and such are we. He died for us because of God's great love. I think it's fitting to end with those thoughts. Love brought Jesus to the cross to save the undeserving. So John 3.16 is the golden center. It's the most important thing. And John is not done. So we'll pick it up here next week. Okay. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God how you planned salvation history is a wonder to me. It's, uh, you taught us through all these events our, our problem which is sin. You taught us in the history of your people. And you set in the midst of those people and those horrible stories of their rebellion and sin the, the, all these promises and here we see an image of salvation that points us to the healer of our souls your son who was lifted up for us may we never lose sight of his sacrifice or lose sight of your love in him we pray in his name amen <laughs>